Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Well, I'm on the road again this week, so we're going to do another episode with um, one of the recent speeches I've given. Hopefully you enjoy these. Uh, every speech is a little bit different, uh, plus the question and answer is a little bit different. And this week is definitely uh, an example of that because it's a lecture I gave at Michigan State called How Oil Improves the Planet. And there are two fairly well-represented audiences or groups in the audience. Uh, one is college students, uh, particularly a lot of them who are, you know, very much steeped in environmentalism, some of uh, whom told me, who told me afterward that they were work for Greenpeace, uh, definitely taking various uh, classes, as you, you'll hear, if you'll notice that one, one of the, one of their professors came, although didn't see fit to ask an engaging question, but asked a rather uh, sarcastic question. But in any case, that was an interesting audience that raised interesting uh, questions and, and raise some interesting issues about how students are educated and how they respond when they find out that they're simply making factually incorrect statements. I found that interesting. Anyway, at the same time, there are people from the Society of Petroleum Engineers and a, uh, and as well as, I forget the exact name, but um, the Geological Society in the area. So it's a really interesting audience and that, that shaped both the speech and the Q&A period. Now, unfortunately, I guess uh, I've somewhat oversold the Q&A period because, uh, because not all of it was caught on tape. We video recorded it and, uh, you know, not, uh, it cut off early, so cut off a little bit into the Q&A, so we didn't get everything. But afterward, I will tell you about a couple of the questions and answers and um, you know, some of the lessons I take from that. But enjoy the talk, enjoy the beginning of the Q&A, and I will be with you on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. So without insulting anyone, we have a, a fairly uh, age-diverse audience uh, how many of you are undergrads at the university? How many of you are graduate students at the university? And how many of you are in the oil and gas industry? Okay, so we have a lot of interesting The rest are all retired. <laughs> <laughs> you're so yeah. I'm not going to ask a social security <laughs> question. Um, yeah, so I was, uh, about an hour ago, I was reading a, a story about Al Gore. Al Gore was uh, in Canada recently, and he was talking about uh, the oil sands, which is a very, or some people call it tar sands, a very controversial oil project in that area. And some of the people defending the oil sands use the term ethical oil. They say it's, you know, it's ethical to use oil from Canada because you're not using it from Saudi Arabia, etc. You can ask about it in the Q&A. But anyway, Al Gore said something pretty memorable, even though I disagree with it. He said there's no such thing as uh, ethical oil. 
There's only dirty oil and dirtier oil. So there's only dirty oil and dirtier oil. And I think this reflects, you know, a common view uh, in our culture, which I want to discuss tonight, which is the idea that oil, more broadly fossil fuels, but particularly oil, is destroying uh, the planet. So just so I get a sense of where people are coming from, you need to a poll you. You have to raise your hand insofar as I can make you. And uh, I'm going to give you three options. One is that you overall agree with the statement oil is destroying our planet. One is you overall disagree, and one is you're conflicted. So let's take overall agree. Who would overall agree? Agree with the uh, idea that oil is destroying the planet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, when this happens, I, I have to take that position. So I don't know if you're going to like that. Um, who would say uh, overall disagree? And who would say overall mixed? So those of you who are mixed, um, what would you what would you give as a couple of reasons for why? Yes. Global warming. Okay, can you elaborate? Well, uh, oil is obviously what propelled my car here tonight, even though it's a hybrid. And I, I understand that that's kind of a, a devil's bargain that I made when I bought a car, mm -hmm. uh, but. On the other hand, I, I know there will be consequences to my use and everyone else's use of things that end up emitting CO2. So what consequences? Well, some foreseeable, some not, but uh, and some good and some Wait, bad. Wait, you foresee unforeseeable consequences? Yes, just like uh, Donald Rumsfeld said, it's the things that we don't know that we don't know, right? <laughs> Okay, so we've got the, the general fear of consequences from greenhouse gases leading to global warming. Uh, what else? You don't have to be shy. Are you raising your hand back there? I saw, I saw a twitch, but I can't tell if you're just moving your hands. It's a fair point. Um, the reason I, I use the terminology is because uh, it's very, very common terminology. I mean, it's, it's, it's often the way the issue is presented. Uh, so, you know, you'll hear, I mean, destroy the planet is definitely not a term I made up. And, and uh, you'll also hear the term save the planet, right? We have to save the planet. When I grow up, I want to save the planet. Don't save the planet. I, I saw the, the one this morning in my hotel room, you know, uh, what is it? Reuse your towel. Uh, save the planet. But you raise a good question. It's, it is very uh, ambiguous terminology. And today, I, I mean, philosophically, I come from the standpoint of when I talk about the planet, I mean the planet from a human perspective. So having a planet that's as livable as possible for human beings, so making the planet the best possible place to live. So we're not getting, um, you know, depending on the audience, uh, you get more or less of this. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play devil's advocate for my, for my own position. Um, and I'll just take this this farther. So the thing I'll typically hear if I if I say, look, I you know I think uh, I'm very pro oil. Um, yeah, I think it's essential to life. Um, 
you know, what will they say? Well, they say, first of all, you know, okay, it's obviously causing catastrophic global warming. And then what about the BP oil spill? Like, what about emissions uh, from tailpipes? And, are, you know, it's a scarce natural resource. We're running out of it. So it's just, um, as a guy, I debated a guy from Sierra Club recently, and he just, I believe he said, I don't remember the exact quote, was like, oil isn't good, you know, oil is just bad across the board. Oil is just a bad idea. Uh, across the board. So, one of you who's in favor of it, what would you say if someone lists this litany of, of you know, commonly accepted environmental objections, they say, look, it's destroying the planet, uh, you know, how do you answer that? It's one of the densest energy sources that we have. So you okay. get a lot for a small amount. You can convert a lot of <coughs> Okay, so this is the small point. amount of oil into a lot of work. Right, okay, so this is the point. Um, for those who aren't familiar with it, just you know, every every source of energy uh, stores a certain amount of energy per unit of volume. And one of the reasons oil is so widely used for transportation is it stores. You can think of it as a very high strength to weight ratio. Um, it's, you know, it's a lot of energy in a small space. Uh, and this is actually, if you are interested in nutrition, this is because oil chemically is basically just fat, and fat is the densest you know nutrient that we have, and it's one of the densest nutrients that we have for our machines. But still, that doesn't change the fact that it could be destroying the planet, you could just be, you know, driving, he said he's driving his car, and he foresees the unforeseen consequence that he's destroying the planet. Yes? It's dramatically improved our, uh, our health, our, our general public health, and our standard of living. Okay, that, that sounds more on the point. Can you elaborate on that, in terms, especially in terms of health? Well, I think you can't, you can't just look at any one sector of our of our social or cultural development on its own. You have to, our, our improved health care systems depends on uh, abundant energy. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, it's all interlinked, and I think the abundant energy has helped us to progress in public health, uh, standard living, myriad. Uh, well, okay, what if they say, okay, but look, on the other hand, it's, you know, it's obviously fouling up the air, fouling up the water, you say public health, but the long term isn't it destroying public health? Well, I think the net result is definitely positive, though. Okay. So, yeah, particularly if it's managed properly. I mean, that, that's a key to it. You know, you can't just, uh, I mean, you look back at our industrial processes, you know, a, a couple of generations ago, they were spewing a lot of mm. more toxins and soot and particulates in the air than they are now. So, was it destroying the planet a couple of generations ago? It wasn't destroying the planet. It was. Uh, it was it had its deleterious size, like so many things. There's always a balance. There's good, okay. and there's positive and negative. Okay. But I would have to say, you know, the, the positive for uh, for oil and fossil fuels in general outweigh the negative. Mm -hmm. Now, how, how long are we going to be able to sustain that? I don't know. But for the generations that have enjoyed it, mm -hmm. it's been net positive. I think. Okay, one more. Civilization depends on energy. Every form of energy comes at some price, some cost, some trade-off. And oil... What about uh, clean solar and wind? Well, they're great, uh, but they come at a cost also. Um, uh, the uh, uh, industry that it takes to produce the equipment uh, produces pollution. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's a great idea. It's economic only because of tax incentives at this point, as much as we would like it to be mm -hmm. the answer. 
And in the history of that type of uh, energy, it has never produced more than about 5% of the demand. Mm -hmm. And it probably never will get to, to really be a significant portion of the total demand. Mm -hmm. uh, oil is cleaner than most, natural gas cleaner than most, and it can meet the demand. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that's part of the trade-off, is how do you meet the demand uh, that we have with the best we can do and be affordable and dependable. Mm -hmm. All right. So I think I think like a lot of the view here um, in terms of an environment, oil and environment, is usually this. I mean, people who support oil is oil is completely essential economically, and yet it's not that great or even maybe long-term disastrous environmentally. But you know, we have no choice. This is the best thing. Solar and wind are unreliable. They're not economic. They're not going to replace the others anytime soon. Which in my view, certainly, certainly true for the lab. Um, so I'm not going to argue that, though. I think that that's a very big understatement um, of what is the effect of oil on human life. And so my view is that oil, but more importantly, it's not just oil. Energy as such is the single most positive thing that can happen to an environment. And so uh, the gentleman in the back, I think, raised a really helpful issue earlier, just being really clear about what we mean by you know, improve the planet, destroy the planet. Uh, and this is often an issue where there's not a lot of clarity. So uh, I'm just going to put out my view is make the, the planet the best place possible to live for human beings. And I did a thought experiment once that, that really helped solidify my view on this. I asked, okay, you know, we hear that fossil fuels are bad for our environment. That's kind of un, uncontroversial. Like, you know, and we hear that our, you know, our water is foul, our air is foul, or... Maybe it's gotten a little better recently. And then I thought, okay, but like in comparison to what? So let's let's say, uh, you know, we took a guy in a time machine from 300 years ago, before you know, before the industrial revolution, before the mass use of coal, oil, and natural gas, and we plunked him in any environment, in any part of the United States of America, and we asked him just one question: Is this a better environment than you lived in, without fossil fuels and industry, or is it a worse? environment. How many people think he would say worse? <laughs> really? From 300 years ago he would say worse? No, the place 300 years ago was worse. Oh, oh no, this, this one is worse. Okay, how many people think he would say better? He would say better. Okay, a lot of you are raising your hand. <laughs> but so, it's relevant, right? I mean, we talk about like, oh, it's, it's ruining our environment. But the premise is what I call like the Disney view of nature, which is that nature without human beings, without, without us using energy, without us you know, creating different things, is just a clean, wonderful uh, place full of natural resources and without threats. And then we're the ones, you know, human beings are the ones who mess it up. Like, you know, in effect, we kill Bambi. And, uh, this guy would, would quickly correct that, uh, that misimpression. Because he would say, like you say, oh, well, what about the air? He'd say, the air here is amazing. I mean, it's fresh all over the place. And I, you know, speaking for him, I'm, you know, I breathe the air of an open fire. People where I live, we get bronchitis at 40 or 45. Because the way we produce energy through wood leads to massive, massive indoor air pollution, which is by far the most dangerous type of pollution. Um, which is much different even if you have a coal plant, it's decentralized, it's much cleaner than, you know, than burning wood, 
it's cleaner for God's sake than even going and having a campfire in the woods. Uh, you know, he would, the, the guy would think this is amazing. What about water? Well, his water, he'd say, look, my, you know, you, I can just turn on a tap and I have clean water. And my, you know, my water back then is what? Well, it could be contaminated by the local animals. It could be contaminated by all kinds of bacteria. Who knows what's going to be in my water? This is why people would die all the time of waterborne uh, diseases. What else? Sanitation. I mean, I don't think we have to talk about it too much between the difference between sanitation 300 years ago and today, but that's part of what makes a planet a healthy place to live. Um, and then even take something like one, like a more aesthetic part of our environment of nature, enjoying, you know, enjoying, enjoying the world around it. Well, if he came here, would he have a better uh, ability to enjoy nature? Or if he lived before, before, maybe he could travel five miles away from where he's born. For all practical purposes, the Grand Canyon didn't exist to him. None of the natural wonders of the world existed to him unless he happened to live in it. Now, thanks to transportation, you know, which is almost exclusively oil, he can he can do this. He can go anywhere. And of course, all of this is all of this is I shouldn't say of course, but all this reflects in the fact that we have a life expectancy of 80, and he had a life expectancy of 30. So, I find it really odd from a certain perspective, that it's taken as uncontroversial that these technologies are, these energy sources are regarded as environmentally bad, when we live in empirically by far the greatest environment that any human being has ever known, in terms of if you want to live a healthy, uh, long life with opportunities. Yes? Uh, you know, when I give talks on energy, to just summarize the question, you know, you're saying the past is the key to the future. But if you take the proved and potential oil and gas reserves and you convert that to energy, you're going to create enough gigatons of CO2 to raise the future temperature. So does your analogy trying to say the past is the key to the future, does that really work? And if it does, how do you yeah, answer Yeah, for sure. So we're going to get to that. CO2? So we're going to, I just want to lay the context of, of what evidence we have so far and then what we're for sure that's going to be our big example is the sort of CO2 and how that how that factors into the situation. But it, I wouldn't say it's not the past is the key to the future. That's, that's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is this. The natural environment is inherently full of threats, is inherently high on threats and low on resources. <coughs> Those are like the two points. And I didn't discuss resource too much, but that guy back then was really, really poor. There was even more oil in the ground. There was more gas in the ground, but it wasn't a resource to him because they didn't know how to use it. They didn't have industrialization to make use of, of they turn raw materials into resources, therefore um, they were poor. So the idea is the natural environment is high on threats and low on resources. So whenever we discuss environmental issues, destroying the planet, we have to remember that the planet, absent human beings doing a lot of things to it, is an extremely, extremely precarious place to live. We can't have the Disney view or the mother nature view that nature is our mother. Nature is not our mother. The rest of nature is not trying to take care of us. Uh, in many ways, it's trying to oppose us. Now, the wonderful thing is nature gives us the potential for an amazing life. But only with industrial activity can we actualize that potential. Out of curiosity, can you even have cities without oil and gas right now? <clears throat> you know, uh, society 300 years ago was agrarian. Mm -hmm. Could you 
And would you haul in wood from the countryside? Would you haul in coal? I and mean, people on high rises are burning coal. You know. I, well, I mean, you have. I mean, if you look at ancient Greece, you have a certain kind of city. I mean, it depends what you mean by a city. If you mean a place of electricity where you can charge your iPhone. Cold, a cold country type of where you have to heat your home to stay alive. Yeah. Well, they had trouble heating. I mean, they, they didn't have much climate control. Um, so this is then, the, I think, the, just the first fact I want to stress about just which is the context because then. The idea is whenever you hear about an environmental issue or energy, you have to remember that it's not that if we do nothing, we're going to have a good environment. To have a good environment, we need to do a massive, massive amount of stuff. And that leads to energy. So you could say, all I, all I said was before fossil fuels, we didn't have a good environment, and now we have a much better environment. That's just a correlation, right? It doesn't, doesn't by itself show uh, cause and effect, although it's an incredibly, incredibly strong but I think if we look at what actually happened, how we got here, it's, it's causation. Um, because what happened? Why are we so much richer? Why, have we, uh, why do we have so much of a better environment now? I mean, the answer is we created it. We created it by, by development, by doing a massive amount of work on the world around us to make it more hospitable to human life. And then if you take one step further, so we did the development, we did the work. How do you do work? Well, in science class, What's the thing that is the capacity to do work? Energy. Energy. So you just learned that in physics class. It's also an economic definition. Energy is the capacity to do work. So basically, the reason why we were poor for all of history, why I had such bad environmental quality, such bad quality of life, is because humans are inherently very weak. You know, our muscles are weak. We can't do much work on the world around us. What happens to change all of that is the Industrial Revolution, which is really an energy machine revolution. So you figure out how to get machines that can do your work for you. And then you need to figure out a source of energy that's like the calories for those machines. So when we talk about energy, it's like we're talking about machine calories. And basically with enough energy and enough machines, we can do, you know, we can do more uh, development. That's why in the undeveloped world, they use very little energy. So energy is, is the fuel of development, and thus the fuel of a good environment. And today, Today in America, we have the equivalent of 600, our machines do the equivalent of six, the work of 600 people for us. So you mentioned cities. Unfortunately, a lot of development in the past was done by slaves. And part of the reason for that is people who wanted to go above subsistence, it was very hard to do just by your physical efforts. They did it by exploiting someone else, so making their life even worse to make your life a little bit better. But once you can do machine, once you can do stuff with machines, there's no exploitation. In fact, other people can help you invent better machines, get better forms of energy, and it's all mutually beneficial. Two points so far. Um, natural environment, inherently low on resources, high on threats. Um, and then energy is the key to developing the natural environment into a modern environment. Any questions so far? Yes. It seems that your entire premise is based on the human as yes. the key component. Yes. If we look at and some of the arguments that some of the environmental uh, people use is that our activities have adversely impacted other species significantly in some cases. Right. I mean, the success of any species adversely affects the species that are trying to kill it. Or trying to do it. I mean, every species... It lives at the expense of other species. Um, 
But you raise a point, and it's worth it's worth emphasizing. And, and I want to talk about what it means to think in terms of humans. So thinking in terms of human environment doesn't mean that you don't care about the rest of nature. In fact, you care about it deeply, precisely in the way that you rely on it, and it's, it's part of your life. And so we're going to talk about global warming in a minute. It's certainly very relevant to know, would be very relevant to know, if CO2 emissions were turning the Earth into you know, a furnace of sorts, or were making the planet unlivable. From a human perspective, that would be very bad. But the point philosophically is, would be of something like changing climate, is that it's not inherently, you can't say it's inherently bad for human beings to have some impact on climate, independent of the consequences on human beings. So if us increasing the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere from 0.03% to 0.04%, if that makes it a little bit warmer, if you average out every location in the world from you know Siberia to Florida, that by itself proves nothing unless you can show that there's damage. If you can show there's damage, that's when it, it's a concern, but it's a concern from a human perspective. And often when people talk about environment, they blend two things together. And this is the key to most environmental fallacies, is they blend together talking about the environment from a human perspective and a non-human perspective. So they'll say, well, you shouldn't be allowed to use oil because it displaces, because A, it ruins the air, and B, it displaces caribou in Alaska. Well, those are two very different sorts of arguments. One is a human perspective, the other is a non-human perspective. And human perspective on caribou would be if you want, if you want to live with caribou, go buy some land, and you know live with caribou. Um, or I mean, you could also point out that the caribou like the oil. Well. Yeah. <laughs> that was not the point philosophically. Even if they didn't like it, you have a right to. And if you don't believe you have a right to, then none of us should be here because we should have just left all of the animals that were here before. Yes? Just to play the devil's advocate, Please. don't you think if you raise global sea levels by one foot, that will have a real negative impact on human beings? Yeah, so let's, let's, get, to, let's get to that issue, um, since it's, it's obviously on everyone's mind. Well, let's, why don't we just make it, if we raise global sea levels by 100 feet, wouldn't that have a negative impact? On a short enough time horizon, for sure. Yeah, I mean, sea levels probably, of all the scares involved, is the scariest in that if you have a dramatic increase in sea level at a certain pace, if it's over a million years, nobody cares because you adapt. But if it's at a certain, and we of course have had massive sea level increases, right? Mm -hmm. We used to have, I mean, uh, I think here and certainly in Canada, it used to be covered with you know, thousands of feet of ice uh, above, you know, during the ice age. So our sea level has been rising for a very, very long time. The issue is that it's too quick. Um, let me just say something quick about what, so, when we say that, when I say energy did all of this, it's important that people can only engage in this kind of development to the extent that energy is cheap, plentiful, and reliable. So let's take China and India in the last couple decades. Uh, there's a reason why they used coal and oil as sort of their overwhelming source of energy, and because that's, for the development they needed, those were by far the cheapest ways of doing it. We can talk about solar and wind later, but it's no accident that none of these countries even considered using those as a baseline source of energy, and only China has put up a couple windmills, relatively speaking, uh, for sort of diplomatic reasons, but um, it built up using cheap plants for reliable energy. And the reason why we use oil is because uh, for transportation, that's by far the most effective source of cheap, plentiful, reliable energy. So to the extent we restrict that, that means we restrict development, we restrict quality of life. So even if you think it's necessary, for some reason like global warming, you have to realize that you are talking about 
a, a cut in life. So if you're restricting energy, you're restricting people's ability to develop, which means their ability to live. So, um, unfortunately we got here late, so I didn't have time to bring my slides, so I'll have to discuss it um, on global warming. But, so given this perspective, given this understand, I want you to think when I, I tell you the following fact about global warming. Remember the idea that the natural environment is inherently low on resources and high on threats. Um, because what that implies with the climate, what we should expect is that the natural climate is very high on threats. Again, I think there's a lot of the Disney view of climate, which is without us. You know, now every time there's a storm, it's just, well, we caused it. You know, or we have something to, as if, you know, a really bad storm is some sort of new phenomenon. And it can be hard to make sense of these issues, because you just hear all these reports, and scientists all agree with this, and, and you know, this authority says that. And, you know, I don't, uh, my background is, is not, you know, primarily in science. I studied a bit, you know, my background is as a philosopher. Um, which you might not think is too useful in, in this question, but I actually think it is. Because it allows you to zero in, I think, on asking what's, what's the question, how do we really resolve this? And, and as a philosopher, in believing in making the planet the best place possible for human beings, my question about climate is this. Leaving aside models and, and a lot of other stuff and, and claims and whatever, what has actually, what is the actual evidence that we have so far I guess two questions. What's the evidence we have so far about the impact of CO2 emissions on uh, whether we have a safe climate to live in, and what's the evidence about the future? And so far is the important place to start, because it's a lot harder to lie about the past, or it's a lot harder to make up stuff about the past than it is to make up stuff about the future, because the future is very hard to make. So what was interesting was looking at a body of data. Um, there's one international institute that's kind of the definitive uh, source on this. And it has data on a really important statistic, which is called climate-related deaths, which is really important, because if we're afraid of dying and getting hurt from climate, we should study, okay, what's happened to climate-related deaths as we've increased CO2 emissions? And it's especially important because it's not a new theory. This theory has been around, it's been very popular for over 30 years. We've been hearing very negative predictions, and in the news we've been hearing reports that things are getting worse. But what bothers me about those reports is they're very, uh, they don't really give a context. They just say, oh, this is a really bad uh, storm in New York, therefore, you know, global warming. Or even now there's snowstorm, global warming, or climate change, because it turns out, you know, that even cold is... And that could even be hypothetically true, but I don't get... What's the big picture? So what's interesting is if we look from the latest statistics from 19... like 20 or 30, the last 80 years, to the present, like to right now, we look at the number one database of climate-related deaths. You, I would have thought, before I saw this data, my view was, well, those have probably gone up, but it's still outweighed by all the other stuff. But in fact, no, it's gone down. It's gone down 98%. So the number of people who have died from climate-related causes has gone down 98% in the last uh, 80 years. You can, by the way, at my website, industrialprogress.com, we have the source for this. <coughs> yes, in the back. What kind of casualties are listed in that database? Drought. Uh, That's weather, right? But what, what would you take as, so, I don't want to get too technical here, but what would you take as climate versus weather? See, I have a problem with that because it's ignoring the concept that the medicine also has increased in the lifespan. So, this business about 
step, what do they count as a climate-related death? Does cancer, an incidence of cancer, which is going up immensely, count? And, and part of that is we keep coming up with cures for the cancer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Wait, 20, 20 years ago, if you had lung cancer, you were going to die. Uh -huh. And today, you're 80% chance survivability rate. So, I, I, I don't accept that as, as the ultimate proof of global warming being going or, or not. It just doesn't, Wait, so it doesn't you, you, you treat cancer as, as reflective of whether, what, how does cancer reflect CO2? It's not just CO2 that's being thrown into the atmosphere. It's all the particulates. I grew up in... Okay, um, wait, wait, hold on a second. No, no, hold on a second. No, 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 excuse me. No, 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 I just let you talk for two minutes. But we need, you're sort of raising a bunch of issues, and it's, it's. Uh, we just need to address them one at a time. So I was specifically bringing up right now the issue of climate. So we're trying to segment that off, and then we can talk about particulate matter. But So you can give this this little speech in a couple of minutes, and then we can deal with it that then. But you're basing on one item, and in reality, you're not looking at the whole picture. Okay, but so other I mean, people can be the judge of that, but I'll, I'll explain why I think it's. So what I'm saying is, if you want to know the fundamental question, if, if the idea is we're afraid what climate is going to do to our lives, we should look at the data of what has climate actually done to our lives. And there's this sort of staggering correlation that, or this staggering fact that it's gotten 50 times safer when everyone talks about it getting dangerous. So empirically, we have, at least at the moment, we can talk about the future when we have the least reason to be, uh, you know, we're safer than ever, and yet we're more afraid of the climate uh, than ever. Who paid who's not that dangerous? As I said, um, I didn't have my slide. I didn't have time to put on my slide before. It's on. I said it's on my website, <coughs> industrialprogress.com. Right, okay. uh, there's an there's an ebook there, and uh, you can look it up. Or you can look up my debate with Sierra Club. I gave the latest reference. Um, yes, but sir. I think some of the points that he was making are relevant. If you're talking about uh, mortality and climate, and what an individual's susceptibility was 300 years ago versus today, mm -hmm. there are different immunities, there are different um, practices that people have, uh, the shelter structure is different. So uh -huh. it's really not comparing the same risk of mortality given a change in climate okay, so that exists today the, 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 as compared to the risk of mortality. So this is exactly my point, though. So what you're saying is, well, it's, you're not, but what am I comparing? See, when I say 98%, there's no way that any change in climate by itself is going to lead to a 90% decrease in danger. There's certainly, there's just not that much variability in nature. So I'm not saying the CO2 caused such a safe climate that it went down by 98%. No, it's precisely what you're talking about, things like structures. It's that development caused a safe climate. It's the technology caused a safe climate and energy as the fuel of our machines is the fuel of development, is the fuel of technology. So what we have so far is that the positive impact on climate safety of energy and technology is so strong that even if there were a negative impact, negative net impact from CO2, it's undetectable, it's noise, because the positive is so strong. So you could hypothetically say, oh, if we had used all nuclear energy, which emits no CO2, it would be down 99%. But we can't say that we have no idea. The point is it's gotten staggeringly better. And so just as the key point environmentally is energy, the key point climatologically is energy. You can't talk about the future of our climate without talking about the role of energy in dealing with that climate. So
So now we can, but now let's, let's go forward. Past does, you know, uh, whatever, as they say in investment you know, prospectuses, past performance doesn't necessarily inter indicate future performance. Um, but sometimes it does. So it's for sure a very dramatic trend, and it should, should really give us pause that we've had decades and decades of people saying really bad stuff is going to happen, and the goalpost keeps moving. Right, it's gonna. It's always ten years down the line, um, but still we hear predictions of of really disastrous stuff. We hear the temperature is going to increase by X, and that's going to lead to Y. And so again, as a philosopher, I have just kind of one question, which is, what is the basis of those uh, predictions? And if someone if someone says, oh, scientists say it, that I don't consider that a specific enough uh, answer. I want to know, you know, which scientists say it, but really, what is their evidence? Like, I know a lot of the evidence for E equals MC squared. I can, I can follow a scientific argument. Just give me a scientific argument. Um, and it turns out that the basic argument, the only real argument for all of this stuff in terms of what proves it is, is a set of computer models uh, based on a certain view of how the climate works. And so I know a bit about those, you know, the physics of that. But the most important thing, just as a philosopher asks, is, okay, how do we know, how do we know whether to trust a climate model? And it's pretty simple. It's a predictive model, so how well does it make predictions? How well does the climate prediction model predict climate? And the answer is uh, very, very poorly. None of the models used by the UN um, agency have ever accurately predicted anything meaningful about the climate. And the most famous model in, uh, I wish I had my slides here, but the most famous model in like, the history of climate by a guy named uh, James Hansen, who's one of the leading policymakers, um, his, his model was off uh, to, just to give you a visual, he made a prediction of what would happen if we used like an unfathomable amount of CO2, and he just said basically temperatures are going to go way, way up. Um, and he said, you know, and and he said, okay, if we use no more CO2, if it's all flat, it's gonna it's gonna still go up like this. And in fact, we used more CO2 than the unfathomable scenario, and the temperature went up less. In the last 15 years, you might have heard in the news, it hasn't gone up at all uh, on a global level. So it's just completely flatlined. So none of the prediction models have predictive significance. And again, it doesn't matter how many people say what. It's very, the test of models is do they predict. Same way in the financial crisis, you had a lot of people saying, oh, we have brilliant models that can predict the whole future. How do you test those models? By how many PhDs endorse them? Or by the fact that they failed? Yes? I also heard that they tried to back test the models by put, like, plugging them into history to yeah, see yeah. if they would predict today, and they didn't. Well, no, no, no. For sure you can make them predict today. So this is just a technical issue, but it's worthwhile, because sometimes people say, I sometimes get the objection, oh, well, no, you're wrong. The latest model, the latest model is completely consistent with all the data. But if you're in any kind of, if you've ever done any kind of advanced math, if you have enough variables, you can create a function that looks like anything. So the test in models is can it forecast? Like right now, or in, in 1990, when you know, can, how does the leading model perform in the future? Um, it's the other thing they call hind casting, which is basically just rewriting uh, history, where they look at okay, it flatlined. So how do we make up? How do we ch change the variables in our model so that it, it flatlines this particular point and then jumps way up? That's just math mm -hmm. tricks. Um, you need to be able to validate in a forward-looking way. Yes? Um, I mean, I'd really just like to confirm the point that you just, um, <clears throat> you just mentioned. You were saying that 
There are some models that have said that the temperature simply has not risen at all. I don't know how to put it you know, softly, but that's just not true. 2012 was by far the hottest year on human record right now. 1998 was the Not true. On US, not, not, US. Only, not only was 2012 hotter than 1998, it was, it was hotter by a large margin. And before that, it was you know, 10 of the last 12 years have been the hottest in, in their respective records. And I'm just wondering, I mean, how can you base... You so know, where did you get that? I'm curious where you got that from. I, I mean, I read that in the New York Times. I mean, okay. that's not even a controversial statement. Well, it's a little controversial because you're not being specific about location. Um, so in 2012, it's very a very little convenient thing. What happened was... so. Um, you, you have um, many international advocates of catastrophic global warming, including uh, Phil Jones, you can look this up, uh, of the Climatic Research Unit. You have, this came out of the Hadley Center in the UK, which is one of the three main centers of this, and they have a very clear graph that shows it flatlining, including 2012 not going, not being the hottest. So what happened? Everyone decided, let's take the country. So obviously, you're going to have a global average temperature, and you're going to have lots of variation within each country. So what did they do? They just took the country with the hottest temperature and said, oh, it's the hottest year on record, which is the United States, and they duped people like you. I just, I just can't take seriously anybody that doesn't believe the temperature right in some respect. Wait, 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 are, if you're, are you going to dispute me on global versus local, or will you admit that you took I'm in not a piece of propaganda? On global versus local. I just believe. But you just you no. Hold on a second. You declared to an audience of 50 people definitively that I was wrong about a statistic that I was correct about that you know nothing about, and you have been a cipher for the New York Times. So, at first, even if you're right, you should apologize for pretending to know I, something I'm you don't know anything about. Okay. So, I'm, 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 but I'm but enough. <laughs> okay, so anyway, this is, this, it's really important, though, to, to ask the right questions. I think this is the lesson here. If you're going to ask about temperature, ask about what's the global temperature. If someone just says hottest in X years, ask what X years is. Um, let me just sort of wrap up the point, and then, then we can actually just take questions uh, for the rest of the time. Um, so we've got a real problem in the culture where the very thing that has given us the greatest environment in history, including the safest climate in history, is under attack as destroying our environment. And this has very real consequences because, uh, you know, everyone can benefit from more energy in the world, and particularly people in the developing world can benefit from more energy. If you, if you, if everyone in this, we often hear, oh, Germany is the perfect user of energy, which I disagree with. You know, they use half as much as we do. I don't think it's good to use half as much. Um, I would like to use more. I don't think I use too much energy. Uh, I can think of a lot of ways, a lot of ways to use more energy, including desalinating water and solve all your water problems. But in any case, if we take Germany as a model, for every person in the world to use the same amount of energy as Germany, you'd have to use twice the amount of energy that we do today. 87% of our energy today comes from fossil fuels. Uh, less than half a percent comes from solar and wind. So if you round to the nearest whole number, it's zero. And, more importantly, that energy from solar and wind is completely dependent upon fossil fuels. So it doesn't, there are no standalone solar plants and wind plants, um, except you can have like a tiny little shack off the road and pay a lot of money for a solar installation. Um, but in terms of like a real city or anything like that, there are no standalone solar plants. Uh, in Germany, like the leader in solar, they, they haven't replaced one coal plant with solar. In fact, they're... They, they're building 12 new coal plants. So you're talking about the most important source of energy in the world, fossil fuels, is under attack as ruining our environment, even though 
empirically it's improving our environment, even though factually the models that claim disaster uh, are false. And even though historically warming is much better for human beings than cooling, and uh, cold-related deaths always outweigh heat-related deaths, including uh, today. So despite all of that, these are being vilified as bad for our environment. And the same people, by the way, are also doing their best to shut down nuclear power plants, which emit no CO2, and shut down hydroelectric dams, which emit no CO2. So it's, uh, I mean, the reason why I got into this whole thing, I, uh, you know, I kind of luckily ended up studying uh, I was studying antitrust law, actually, and uh, John Rockefeller, the famous oil man, was a major figure, and I started studying him and the true story about him, and I just, I became, I was just blown away by how much of a difference it made for, the, from the time that people didn't have oil to the time that they did. I mean, if you take, like, 1859, the first year of the oil industry, to 1864, you have the countryside going from dark at night to lit up at night. And that's what you have in the world today. You have people who are getting their first light bulbs. I mean, if you don't have light in your life, you, you have a shorter life. I mean, you're not, there's no, none of this, you know, without, without just modern energy. So it's, uh, you know, I hope you'll, you'll check us out at industrialprogress.com and we're on Facebook. Uh, because, you know, we, I think we really need a new environmental movement in this country. One which recognizes the most important thing uh, for environment is cheap, plentiful, reliable energy, and that, that oil is, is one of the greatest uh, in that respect. Which doesn't mean, you know, which doesn't mean that there are no challenges in using oil. Certainly there are. There are challenges in using everything. Uh, solar and wind uh, have the worst mining and most destructive mining practices in the world uh, at present, because to get those clean things, you need a lot of very toxic elements. Um, everything has challenges, but uh, the benefits far outweigh the challenges, and, and in facing the challenges, we certainly shouldn't be deriving, uh, depriving ourselves of the benefits. Uh, so with that, let's, let's take questions. Uh, did you have a question? Yeah, I wanted to respond to that. Um, I think that it's kind of hypocritical that you're asking your audience to cite their sources right now when you were supposed to be prepared for this presentation, you didn't even cite your sources, when it is well accepted in the scientific community that global temperatures are increasing on average. I, I cited my source. You said it's on my website. No, for, for that one, because it has a very complex name. And, but that is a citation, right? That is a place, just like any other places. And, it ha and you can email me if you don't find it. So I mentioned that the Hadley Research Unit, which is very easy to find online. Uh, you can look at any of the major climatic uh, data things. So, but was, was there a question? Yeah, I have another question. Okay, um, wait, so let me just, okay, so I'm, Hypocrite and no, I just I thought you, you raised you some other. I thought that it was hypocritical that you are like pressing your audience so hard for sources when you were the one. But 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 that was a that was a a sort of very uh, well known fallacy that is deliberately spread by people trying to mislead people about the. Oh no, no this is the thing you said. Besides, the, the hypocrite threw me for a second because I, I I wanted to address the other part. You said it's clearly accepted by the scientific community that what. That overall global average temperatures are increasing. At, at what rate and, and over what time scale? That's just not the point. You said they weren't increasing. No, for the last 15 years, they've been flat. You didn't say that. I said they've, I said they've never yeah, risen. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let me just be clear. Uh, we had an ice age a while back, and temperatures have been rising more or less since that ice age. And then we've had a lot of little dips and you know, rises and stuff. So in medieval times, it got warmer, then it got cooler, Rome, same. 
Uh, and then, you know, before the 1850s, it was called the Little Ice Age, and since then it's gotten, uh, if you look 70 years, when you started using just a little of fossil fuels, a little CO2 emissions, it went up by about half a degree. Then you look at the next 70 years, we use a lot more, it goes up by half a degree. And then it basically flatlines. So it's been about a one degree increase in the last 160 years, um, which is a very uh, unalarming rate of warming. I should say, though, that none of my argument depends whatsoever uh, on amount of warming unless you can show that warming is detrimental. There's a premise that if human beings are causing any sort of warming, uh, that's somehow bad. But my question is always, okay, what if we were causing cooling? Would, that, would, would the press react and celebrate that we're cooling? Because it, just to, talk, to say something about the theory of catastrophic global warming, um, the only negative consequence of CO2 that's posited in the theory is warming, right? So if warming is bad, cooling has to be good. What happened when people thought that the consequence was cooling? Did they celebrate and thank <coughs> capitalism for this fortuitous change in the climate? No, they said it was bad. They said it's going to be a disaster. So it's, it's a little bit suspicious. I'm not even talking about the claim that they said it was cooling and then they said it was warming. That's less interesting to me. What's interesting to me is that no matter what man's effect, it was regarded as bad. And if we look at the, so there's a certain bias against the man-made. And we see the same thing with chemicals. Like, chemicals are supposed to be bad. First of all, everything's a chemical. We're all chemicals. So there's, you know, man-made chemicals and non-man-made chemicals. And whenever you hear, oh, it's a man-made chemical, it's supposed to be bad. Uh, but, you know, arsenic, is that is that some great thing if you use that? Is, is arsenic something? No. Um, the, the way you judge a chemical is not by whether it's man-made or, you know, a pharmaceutical is a very healthy set of chemicals that can save your life in many cases. The way you judge a chemical or any other change in the world is by how it affects human life. Um, and the fact that people view man-made climate change insofar as it exists as automatically bad and don't investigate the consequences uh, or even, even the benefits that might offset it I think is, I call this very seriously, human racism. Anything that man does is bad. Anything the rest of nature does is good. So if, you know, naturally you've had 10 times the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere before. I mean, it's just the only question is, what is the impact on life? And um, if you look at the, 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 if you make a really interdisciplinary study of the impact of emitting CO2 on human life, including uh, the warming, which again is historically generally very good for human beings, although I don't think it's the central issue, uh, <coughs> it's good. So I don't, I don't really see the point of saying scientists agree it's warming. Of course they agree it's warming. It's, I mean, it's been warming over the past 150 years on average. I mean, it, it could only have gone one of two ways. And it went in the warming way, which I'm happy about. So she had a question, right? Did you ever get to ask your question? Well, there were sort of two questions in there. I mean, isn't it hypocritical, and how can you deny the science? All right. You have a well, hold on a second. I, she can ask, she can ask it. Well, I, I like to see people get to ask their questions. Okay, but you understand this. Yeah. I, I, the other people have questions. I promise I'll get back to her. You can delegate her one of your questions. <laughs> yes. So as a philosopher, what do you define the good life? Everybody uses three times the amount of energy they use in Germany. Everybody has two cars and lives at 70 degrees all the time. Or what is the good life? 
and that's your expertise, I guess. You're not a scientist. You're a philosopher. So as a philosopher, what's a good what's the good life? Well, so there's there's sort of um, two pairs of seventy degrees sounds good to me. <laughs> I don't think you. I don't think philosophically you define it primarily uh, in terms of, of energy. But I'm I'm focused here on the aspects of life that I think are uncontroversially positive, such as living long at a certain degree of health. In terms of what's the role of religion in the good life, I have you know, strong opinions on that. That's not tonight's subject because it's not influenced one way or the other um, by this. So the, the key thing that is, that is at issue here in terms of the good life is the length um, and health and opportunity in life. Those, those are the three uh, real variables. And really, ultimately, it's opportunity. Because it's not that every year is necessarily an end in itself if it's not the happiest possible year. The great thing about energy is by having uh, machines do so much work for us, we buy ourselves opportunity. Um, so for example, I have the opportunity to have a job like this where I go around speaking about issues that I really care about instead of just being where I live you know, in Southern California where the demand would dry up pretty quickly probably because not like everyone wants to hear an oil lecture. Uh, everybody. And for that matter, I couldn't live in Southern California. Uh, and first of all, I was born on the East Coast, so I never would have gotten there, you know, without without modern energy. But also, you know, we're essentially a desert. There. What's that? <laughs> With a lot of deaths. So that's a lot of risk. More time on their hands. <laughs> the Donner Party, not as much. <laughs> Um, so to sort of play the climate alarmist doubles advocate, um, the skepticalscience.com people who are climate alarmists, you know about them, yeah. um, they, they would say about your 15 years of flat warming um, claim that no, Hansen's model actually is valid, it just doesn't take into account, his model for CO2 emissions is valid, it just doesn't take in a, into account El Nino and La Nina cycles, right. which are unpredictable, and if we factor those out, his model fits perfectly. That's what they say. How can you, you decipher the to, science when they just say, that's not what we meant? This is why you have to just hold people to decent standards. of. If you make a prediction, you have to specify exactly what the prediction is. Hansen did not go in, in front of Congress and say, it's going to get super hot and dangerous in the next couple decades. Unless there's an El Nino in 1998, which there very well might be. He did not say that. He went in there, he gave a very alarming scenario based on a model that was completely false, and that made predictions that were completely false. And by the way, they shut all the windows in Congress that day to make it super, super hot. So this is the ethics of this. This is document. I'll, I'll, let me, I don't know. You've got to raise your hand. <laughs> this, is, this is a school. Like, I know it's been a while, but um, I'm going to call on someone else before you just just to reinforce etiquette. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'd like to bring that to climate-related deaths. Yeah. Um, with that, could it also be able to do, or due to our ability to predict such weather, such as superstorms and whatnot? For sure. Our ability to take precautions, prepare for it, our ability to evacuate, yes. and respond quicker to it. Yes. But all of those are a function, so the whole information society is a function of a certain level of energy use. Like you're not having weather-based satellites when you don't have, have sufficient energy. So there are many, and this is an important point in general, that um, you have a, 
we have an incredibly intellectual workforce today, which allows us to spend enormous amounts of time figuring out and solving technological problems. That, that all rests on being able to physically survive at a certain level, like produce enough food, produce enough clothing, uh, produce enough shelter, and energy is behind all of that. So you can have a research professor, um, you know, you can have a meteorologist who saves thousands of lives in a city by giving them warning. And not only is the weather satellite, you know, powered by energy, but his entire job is made possible by energy, just as mine is. I'm not producing energy, I'm not doing manual labor, and yet manual labor, uh, you know, sustains my life. All right, I'm back. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, one of the questions that really struck me was a question about, or wasn't a question rather, it was a simple, ex an extremely, extremely uh, confident sounding isn't quite the right word because I think if one was perceptive enough, uh, there was a decided lack of confidence, but certainly, uh, you know, a very strongly and loudly articulated view that I was going against science and how could anyone possibly say this and everyone knows it's getting catastrophically warmer, et cetera, et cetera. And this is obviously uh, someone whose confidence or pseudo-confidence has been bolstered by uh, sort of a very one-sided view of the spectrum of opinions and thus he feels like he's uh, citing, you know, the scientific equivalent uh, of gospel. And it was interesting in two counts. One, that he didn't try or apparently try to even grasp what I was saying about uh, you know, what the, how to think in a careful way about this accusation about climate change being catastrophic and you know, primarily caused by CO2 emissions. He, that, all of that attention to detail simply washed over him because he's been trained religiously to view the world in terms of you know, climate change acceptors and climate change deniers. That's, that's the narrative he's been given, and that's what he's sticking with. Uh, but then it was particularly interesting because he said, well, you know, it's crazy because obviously you know, everyone knows Earth has been getting a lot hotter, and last year was the hottest year on record. Uh, and I said, where was it the hottest year on record? because that's not true in the data system. He says, you know, all around the world. And I said, uh, well, then unfortunately, you've, you've been duped, because they talk about it being the hottest year in America on, on record, which you know, may be true. Um, it's certainly much more true than the world. But because they couldn't say it's the hottest year on record, because, in fact, the average uh, global temperature has been flattening, they focus on the U.S. So they, they can conveniently take a place where it's relatively hot, you know, and given the, you know, the sort of kaleidoscopic nature of what, you know, what country is going to be hottest in a year and what country isn't, <clears throat> they're picking on the U.S. As I told them, look, this is, you know, you're, um, you know, unfortunately you, you've been duped here, you know, by people who are trying to make you scared. And he just kept going. And I said, wait, wait, let's, we got to, Put on the brakes a second and be clear. Do you acknowledge that you just and you told the audience very confidently something that's completely false? So, like, are you denying that? I mean, do you? And is it because if I were you, I would, I would apologize to the audience for saying something false 
and then I would, you know, I would really commit myself to getting better facts. And he, he wasn't stopped at all by that, unfortunately. I talked to him a little bit after the talk, um, and he was a little bit more receptive then. But I found it interesting, I mean, not in, in a good way, but just in ter- it, interestingly revealing of how brainwashed people get and how how the the division or the how the partisanship and tribalism is such is such the opposite of thought and that's really that's really what its goal is because this person's whole identity is i oppose fossil fuels like that's fossil fuels are evil i'm a good person because i oppose them and it's the same thing uh, you know human beings are destroying the planet that's obvious science says it and anything that contradicts that even though it would obviously mean a much better mean much better prospects for the world it just goes completely against his worldview so when when we're talking about these issues <clears throat> we really have to set a good example of being scientific in how we frame things and just looking at everything in relation to human life we have to hold others to the same standard when they're not meeting that standard and just stop them and hold them accountable if someone just says something that's blatantly false that he clearly accepted in a dogmatic way you know it's time for an epistemology lesson he's not willing to learn that lesson you know don't talk to him and if if you're in a public forum and he's in the audience you know he needs to be uh gently reprimanded uh, so that everyone else can see as an example this is how not to think and and you can't allow others to do this because bad thinking leads to bad decisions and this is bad thinking leading to an advocacy of some of the worst uh, decisions. All right, well, let's wrap up the show on that. As always, questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, go to alex at industrialprogress.net. Next week, we'll be back. Another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.